Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. If you would, please now take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, and chapter number three. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can take that Bible and turn to page 73 in the back part, and you would be right at John chapter three. Today, and for the next three Sundays, we're gonna be introducing a new series to you that I have entitled Four Favorites. And as part of the introduction to this series, I want to share with you um, my own personal favorite meal, my favorite entree. You see a picture of it on the screen. It is a filet steak cooked medium with a baked potato with butter only on it. And actually, I took that picture myself. Uh, It's from my favorite place in Norman to get a filet steak and that is Saltgrass Steakhouse. And when I look at that, I say, you know, that is a dish that is a joy to me. Uh, It is very delicious. But the series Four Favorites is not about my favorite foods. It's actually about some of my favorite passages from the Bible. And you might ask, well, why in the world then are you showing us what your favorite food is? Well, you know, there's actually a number of Bible passages that are especially delicious to me and especially meaningful, but the backdrop of all of this really goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah. In fact, in Jeremiah's day, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the law of the Lord had been misplaced in Israel, and it was rediscovered in the time of King Josiah. And Jeremiah, in chapter 15, verse 16, says this regarding the rediscovery, the personal view that he had of it. He said, your words were found, God, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. He was basically saying, I digested your word. I digested your truth. And it was a joy to me. I found spiritual sustenance there. So when we talk about four favorites, there are many passages of the Word of God that are a delight to my heart, but I just want to share four of them with you, just among the the ones that I enjoy. And today, what I want to share with you is actually one verse, which is John chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, in order to really begin to share this with you, you have to go back in time with me to the time in which I was 11 years old. And Willard and Margaret Grant, uh, husband and wife, child evangelist team, came to our town and actually came to our church, Hillcrest Covenant Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. And they were presenting a gospel message to us as kids. Willard and Margaret, interesting couple. They did this for 40 years, traveling five days a week. They put more than four million miles on their vehicles during that time. And when they came to us at Hillcrest Covenant Church, they shared the verse, John 3, 16, with me. And it was a delight 
to me. You know, you look at John 3, 16, and you might say, well, this is the most well-known verse in all of the universe. A lot of times at athletic events, maybe a baseball game or a football game, you'll see someone standing there with a sign that says John 3, 16. A number of years ago, pretty famous quarterback Tim Tebow put John 3, 16 in the black underneath his eyes. A lot of people have heard the address in the Bible, John 3, 16. But not everyone understands what a delight it really is. Frank Page said this about John 3.16. He said, John 3.16 is the Mount Everest of Scripture passages from God's Word. Anne Graham Lotz said this. She said, John 3.16 is the North Star of the Bible. If you align your life with it, you can find the way, capital W, home. Sheila Walsh said this of John 3.16. She said, all the literature in the world cannot compete with the treasure contained in these 25 words. John 3.16 has been called the hope diamond of the Bible. And I absolutely love the words of Max Lucado. He said this, if you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. And so today we're going to take a look at John 3, 16. Now I would like to read a few verses surrounding that, so I'm going to begin reading with verse 14 and I'm going to read down through verse 18. I invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read. John writes in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, John 3.16, I know, is familiar to many of us, but here's what I want to challenge you to do today. I want you to revisit John 3.16 like it was the first time that you ever heard it. Now, our approach is relatively simple. We're going to look at two things. First of all, we're going to look at the backdrop of John 3.16. And then secondly, we're going to look at the treasure of John 3.16. So that's all we're really doing today. So let's begin by looking at the backdrop of John 3.16. And the backdrop of it is actually one of the most fascinating discussions that we have in the Bible. It's a discussion between Jesus and a man by the name of Nicodemus. We learn in the first verse of chapter 3 that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he's also called a ruler of the Jews. Remember, the Pharisees were these religious experts. And when he's called a ruler of the Jews, that means he was a member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which was the supreme court of Israel. So he's a Pharisee, this religious expert. He was a member of the Israeli Supreme Court. And in verse 10, in Jesus' description of him, we learn that he was actually called by Jesus the teacher 
of Israel. Not a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. He was apparently the number one Torah scholar in all of the country. He had the best religious credentials of anyone else in the nation. And what is interesting is that he comes to Jesus, we learn in verse 2 of chapter 3, by night. I mean, here he was, this great Pharisee, this great religious expert, this member of the Supreme Court of Israel, the guy was supposed to know everything religiously speaking, who had the best religious credentials in all of the nation, who was the number one Torah scholar, and he wants to come see Jesus under cover of darkness. Because, you know, Jesus wasn't exactly accepted by most of the religious authorities, and so it's nighttime, you know, and he's looking around. Is anybody going to see me going to see Jesus? Anyone going to see me? You know, so he's coming to knock on the door by night. And there's a conversation that breaks out between the two of them. And I want you to notice in particular what Jesus says in verse 3 of John 3. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, Nicodemus, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. And that word that's translated again, actually two potential meanings to it. One is to be born again. We've heard that phrase a lot. But the other potential meaning of the word is to be born from above. And I really think that's the essence of what Jesus was attempting to communicate to Nicodemus. Nicodemus... Unless you are born from above, you will never see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born from above, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Your, he's really saying to him, really, your religious knowledge, your religious zeal, your religious good works, Nicodemus, are pointless, they are useless, they are utterly worthless when it comes to getting you to the kingdom of God. Now, I know that was a shocking statement to Nicodemus, but here's what's interesting. If that was true of Nicodemus, it's true of all of us. I mean, look at his religious knowledge and zeal and good works. And if it was true of him that his knowledge and zeal and good works are pointless, useless, and utterly worthless to get them to, him to the kingdom of God, it's true of all of us. And all of that backdrop leads us to verse 16, to John 3, 16. So let's begin to look at the treasure of John 3, 16. You notice verse 16 begins with a little word for in English. It's a connective, it's an explanatory term. It's taking us back to a statement that occurred in verse 15. Notice in verse 15 it says, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now he says for, and he's, he's elaborating on that. He's explaining further. Because when you see that phrase, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, what does that mean? How does that work? How does all that happen? So he says, John 3, 16, for, let me explain further how this works. For God so loved the world. God loved the world. Now, that should shock us 
but it doesn't normally shock us, that statement. But that's an amazing statement. God, the God of this universe. You know, they tell us that there are billions of galaxies in our universe and trillions of stars. And in Psalm 147.4, it says that God knows each one of those stars by name. Now, sometimes just sit and think about that for a moment. Trillions and trillions of stars, and God knows every one of them by name. It's an astonishing thing to reflect on. You know, we miss the immensity of this universe that God created, which tells us something about God because he created it all. You know, if you just take our own solar system, you know, we live in the Milky Way galaxy. If you just take our own solar system inside of that, and if you were to climb on a jet and travel at 600 miles per hour, it would take you 17 years to get to the sun. If you continue to travel for 600 miles per hour for 700 years, for seven centuries, you would still be inside of our solar system. You know, inside the Milky Way galaxy where we live, they have now mapped 500, 499 other solar systems. And NASA tells us that inside of our galaxy, there could be 100 billion solar systems. That's a possibility. When we talk about this universe, we're talking about an immense God. And God spoke all of this into existence. It's just a mind-boggling thing to think about. It says, for God so loved the world. You know, and, and I think two thoughts when I see that. Number one, can such a God as this really care about me? I, I'm just a speck in this whole thing. Second thing I think about, if God spoke all of this into existence, what are the chances that he could solve the separation issue between me and God? I think a fairly likely chance he could do that, right? John 3.16, for God out there so loved the world. And I would suggest that you put your name in there. For God so loved Bruce. For God so loved Bruce. You know, we, we throw around that word love so carelessly at times. You know, we don't really understand the biblical nature of love very well. You know, we say, I, I love chocolate ice cream. Or maybe I say, you know, I love my shoes. Or as Janet and I were walking in the mall yesterday, we said, you know, we just love the smell of popcorn popping. It's amazing how they try to capture you with that. And so when we see, for God so loved Bruce, we don't really have a good handle on what that means. The word here is really the word for agape love. It's the, it's the verbal form of it. And I've shared this definition with us before, but this is the definition, the biblical definition of agape love. Agape love is a commitment of my will 
to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. And that's what it's saying here in John 3.16. For God so loved, it was a commitment of his will to my needs and best interest regardless of the cost. And it's, we're going to see it, it costs Jesus a lot, right? A commitment of my will to your needs and best interest regardless of the cost. And by the way, our needs spiritually, one word, massive. Massive. I can remember when I was first learning about this, when I was 11 years old. You know, as human beings, we face the issue of sin in a rebellious heart, and it's a massive problem. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, this is Jesus himself speaking, and he says this, and I remember just hearing this and wrestling with this as an 11-year-old. From within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness. I mean, what a list this is. Deceit, eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from where? Come from within. And Jesus says, they are what defile you and make you, and here's the key words, unacceptable to God. And I can still feel it emotionally when I'm 11 years old and I realize this. I have a massive problem. I have a sin problem in my life. I have a rebellious heart. And you know what's amazing about this is we tend to think of these things, you see this list of things, and we think, well, you know, those are things we're not supposed to do. And we think sin is related just only to what we do. No, it goes deeper than that. Jesus is a divine cardiologist, and he ups the ante on us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, he says, you have heard it taught that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. Oh my goodness. I'm arguing on the interior of my being, some anger with my brother, and God says, in my eyes, you're guilty of murder. Wow, that ups things. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus said, you've heard it taught you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Oh my goodness. We have a massive problem here because it's not just the things that I do or I don't do, but it's the very thoughts that I have. And it tells me that I have a rebellious heart that makes me unacceptable to God. Even an 11-year-old needs to hear that. I hope if you have children, they're hearing that. And you know, the Bible gives us a trifold verdict about ourselves in Romans chapter 5. Number one, it says that we are sinners. That's verdict number one, Romans 5, 8. We've outstepped, we've transgressed God's laws, whether it's through our actions or through the very thoughts that are going on in our head and in our heart. Second part of the trifold verdict is that we are enemies. 
of God, Romans 5.10. You say, well, how does that work? I don't understand how that works. How did it get to be his enemy? Well, because we were rebelling against him. We've been resisting him, resisting his will. And then the third part of the trifold verdict that God gives of us is that we are helpless, Romans 5.6. Basically, I can't do anything to get myself out of this dilemma. It's a problem. And it gets double complicated when we learn from Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. This sin problem, this heart problem that I have that's massive as a human being earns me death. The fate that I have earned due to my sin and rebellion is eternal darkness in hell. And I, I, can, I can remember wrestling with that as an 11-year-old boy. I mean, there was no hope for Nicodemus on his own. That means there's no hope for me. And I can remember just being disturbed by that. It's a lot of bad news, you know. But John 3.16 doesn't end there. For God so loved Bruce that he gave his only begotten son. That word that is translated there, only begotten, is really a compound word in the original. It's just the word mono, which means one, and the word genos, which means kind. Literally, it means one of a kind son. He gave his one-of-a-kind son. The ESV says his only son. The NIV says his one and only son. We could translate it his unique son. If you have a New American Standard, there'll be a little marginal note in the side that says unique. For God so loved Bruce that he gave his unique son. We learn from chapter 1 of John, verse 1 and verse 14, that God became a man, that's Jesus, and he came to this world, right, on a mission, a singular mission, and his mission was to die in our place, to take our penalty that we had earned. For God, this incredible God out there, so loved the world, Bruce, that he gave his unique son. What does that really mean, he gave his son? But we learn from the rest of the New Testament, it expands on that idea, Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us, a commitment, he said, of my will to your needs, Bruce, and best interest, regardless of what it costs me. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, he, Jesus, died for our sins. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love, a commitment of his will to my needs and best interest regardless of the cost. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. You see, I had sin on me, and God took my sin, and he put it on Jesus. 
and you had sin, and you had sin, and you had sin, and you had sin, and he took your sin, and he put it on Jesus. That's what the cross was all about. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that he died for our sins. But it doesn't end there, right? He rose again from the dead. That's a vital element in all of this because the resurrection of Christ was the divine seal of approval by the heavenly Father of his sacrifice for us. John 3.16. For God so loved Bruce that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him. Did you ever notice that word before? The word whoever? I love that word. Everyone fits in whoever. Whoever believes in him. You know, I, I can really clearly remember you know, just wrestling with these truths and, you know, did, did Christ actually die for me? Does God really want a relationship with me? The one who the trifold verdict regarding is that I am a sinner, I am an enemy of God, and I am helpless to do anything about it? I remember working through that in my 11-year-old head. Reminds me of some lyrics from one of my favorite worship songs by Casting Crowns. It's entitled, Who Am I? Part of the lyrics go this way. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would choose to light the way for my ever wandering heart. Whoever believes in him. I love what Jesus says in John 6, 37, because some people say, no, 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 not me. <laughs> I don't really fit in whoever. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I will certainly not reject everybody Everybody fits in whoever. Whoever includes me, and the good news is whoever includes you. I love the word. It's a heavily term for welcome. Welcome. For God so loved the world, Bruce, that he gave his unique son, that whoever believes in him. I, I don't know if you've ever studied the religions of the world, but all the religions of the world, except for biblical Christianity, basically are the same when it comes to how someone obtains salvation and forgiveness before God. All of them, except for biblical Christianity, spell salvation the same way. They spell it D-O. There's something that you have to do. That's what they all say. 
In Buddhism, you know, you have the four noble truths. And the idea is we're supposed to live out and do those four noble truths, eventually going through various reincarnations till eventually we hope to get to nirvana. But it's something we do. In Islam, you have the five pillars of faith. And the idea in Islam is you adhere carefully, you do and live out those five pillars of faith, and then you can reach a point of salvation with God. We could go through all of them. They're all like this. They all say regarding salvation, this is the way, do this. Now, they'll define the do a little bit differently, but they all say do this, do this, do this, do this, do that. This is the way, do this. Biblical Christianity is different. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For God so loved Bruce that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him. Let your eyes go back up to verse 14. Because he makes, we read this, it makes mention of something that Moses did in the wilderness. This really takes us back to an event in the Old Testament that occurs in Numbers chapter 21. You can go back there if you'd like to read about it. Happened in the wilderness where the people of Israel had been rebellious before the Lord. And so the Lord sent upon them, I can't even imagine being in the midst of this, but a plague of poisonous snakes. How many people love snakes? few of you out there, put your hands up. You are unusual people. A plague of poisonous snakes. And the idea was, because of their rebellion before God, they were going to be bitten by the poisonous snake. And when you're bitten by the poisonous snake, you're going to die. Pretty hopeless situation. But God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to make a bronze snake, and I want you to put it on a pole. And then here's what I want you to tell the people after they've been bitten by that poisonous snake. If you will gaze at that bronze snake on the pole and believe by doing that, that I will heal them and they will live. I will heal them and they will live. And that's what he's saying. He said, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up up, and that is an idiom in that day for crucifixion, you know, being lifted up. And, and the idea he's communicating here is sin it is like a deadly spiritual snake bite that we have gotten, and it's going to end in death. But if we will look to Jesus and believe, he will spiritually heal us, and we will live. John 3, 16, for God so loved Bruce that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now, when he's talking about perishing here, he's not talking about annihilation. He's talking about perishing by being utterly lost in an eternity of darkness and hell a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus said. 
a place where we take an eternal plunge into the hopelessness of eternity apart from God. And yeah, they told me about that. We need to be telling our children about that. You're not too young to learn about that when you're 11. It's reality. It is reality. For God so loved the world, Bruce, that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, and here we come, but have eternal life. You know, what is life's number one issue? You know, if I was going to say, what are some of the issues in life? We would have all kinds of things come up, right? We could probably make a pretty long list. You know, I've been through some health issues in recent months. But the number one issue in life is death. That is the greatest enemy that we have. And my favorite quote by a human being is a quote by a Canadian scientist by the name of G.B. Hardy. I've shared this before. He just sort of takes all of this life, all that's in life, all the issues of life, and he says this, I only have two questions. Number one, did anyone conquer death? Number two, did he make a way for me to do it too? Boy, what a great summary of the number one issue of life, the greatest enemy we face. Only two questions. Did anyone conquer death? Answer, yes. Number two, did he make a way for me to do it too? Answer, yes. Yes. For God so loved the world, Bruce, that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, when we talk about eternal life, some people go, I don't know that I want eternal life. My life hasn't been so pretty. <laughs> I don't want any extension of the current life struggle I'm going through. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a future era that we would enter into when there would be no thieves, no drunkenness, no injustice, no broken families, no heartbreak, a place in which there would be unbridled joy. Anyone want to be there? Yeah, I would like to be there. Paul's description in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, says this regarding this eternal state. No eye, I love this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined, and some of us have great imaginations. But no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. John 10, 28, Jesus' words again, he says, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. There's a way you can make a very emphatic construction in the original language. It's called an ume phrase. It's what you have right here. You could easily translate it this way. I give eternal life to them, and they will never, absolutely never, ever perish. That's encouraging to my heart. That is encouraging to my heart. And the truth of the matter is we're learning here that some will perish and some won't perish. So the question is, what is the dividing line? What determines who perishes and who doesn't? Well, there's two destinies, right? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Look at the last verse of the chapter, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Oh, I remember this being laid out before me. And I also remember the response that I had. You know, as we look at all this today, we need to have some life response to it. I'm going to suggest two forms of life response. The first one would be a life response for those of us who, who know Jesus as our Savior. We have believed in him. We've, we've put our trust in him as we've looked at him. And that is that we rejoice afresh about the Savior. That's the first life response we ought to have, having looked at all of this. I mean, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. As those of us who know him as our rescuer from sin and judgment, men and women, the truth of John 3.16 should reawaken our awe of God. It should re-energize our worship. It should rekindle our love for Jesus. It should rejuvenate our gratitude. It should realign our priorities. It should reassure our hope. It should restore our trust in his promises. The truth of John 16 should recharge our prayers. It should restrain us from sinful practices. It should reshape our view of the things of the world. It should renew our aim to honor Jesus with our life. It should revitalize our investing in the kingdom of God. It should reanimate our sharing of the gospel. We need to rejoice afresh about the Savior. Second life response would be for those who have not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior, and that would be to trust Christ for salvation. That's exactly what 11-year-old Bruce Hess did at 8632 Broadmoor in Overland Park, Kansas, which is my house, in my bedroom, on my bed. You don't have to be any place special to look to Jesus as the one who is the solution for our spiritual dilemma and the debt of death that we have earned you can do that right where you're seated right now if you haven't ever done it. You know, too often we tend to run from God. Isn't it interesting how we tend to do that? And yet the truth is that Jesus is the greatest friend we could ever have who is there to help us with the greatest problem that we have. Max Lucado tells a story of a, a cow who stuck her nose into a paint can and couldn't shake it off. Just think about that imagery. You know, the snout goes into the paint can she can't get it off. And, you know, if you're a can-nosed cow, you can't really breathe well. You can't drink or eat. And he said both the cow and her newborn calf were in danger. It was a serious bovine bind. I just love the way he writes. A bovine bind. He said people set out to help. But when the cow saw the rescuers coming, she set out for the pasture. 
They pursued, but the cow kept escaping. They chased the cow for three days. Each time the posse drew near, the cow would run. Finally, using pickup trucks and ropes, they cornered and decanned the cow. You know what? As human beings, we're often exactly like that. We stick our noses where we shouldn't, and we find ourselves in a serious pickle before God. And we will run from him, but he still pursues us. We run from the very one who can help, but he doesn't give up. He loves, he pursues, he persists. And he goes on to write this, every so often a heart starts to soften. And he says, let yours be one of them. And one of them was mine at the age of 11. And I would say to you, if you've never trusted in Christ, let John 3.16 guide you home. For God so loved the world, loved you, that he gave his unique son, that whoever, that includes you, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. These are God's words. Eat them, embrace them, believe them, and they will be a joy and a delight to your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for the word of God, the power of it. We thank you for this incredible verse, just one verse from the hand of God. And we would pray that if there's any who have not yet looked to Jesus as their rescuer from sin and judgment, they would do so by faith, looking to him right now. And for those of us who know you, Father, we would simply say, let us rejoice afresh about this Savior that we have. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 